Such a great joy to um, be together this morning and break open the bread of life. In addition to the uh, bread that I smell, usually on Sunday mornings. Thank you again for that, Lauren. Appreciate that. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. Open your Bibles up. If you didn't bring one this morning, you can use a pew Bible there. We'll have some of the scripture on the screen for you. But open up your Bibles to John 11. If this is your first Sunday with us in a while, that's, um, it's a joy to have you back. First ever, welcome. We preach through the, the Bible and let the Bible kind of guide itself. And let the Bible do the talking for us. And So we're in John's Gospel. We've come to this point in chapter 11. We finish up chapter 11 this morning. Then Alpha and Omega will minister next week. And then, Lord willing, on the first Sunday of October, uh, Brother Norm will preach the next part of John's Gospel, John 12. When you think about the main thrust of Christianity, what comes to mind? I mean, the main thrust of Christianity, it's not uh, Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. It's not uh, church buildings or programs or social justice causes or humanitarian efforts or even good singing like we've heard congregationally here this morning. It's all about Jesus. It's even in the Word. Christ. Christian. Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ and it culminates in the cross. And when you hear preachers talk about the cross of Christ, we mean the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of all of it together. It's the main thing. It's the most important thing. In the New Testament, Paul wrote a substantial amount of the New Testament in letters to local churches. He was writing to encourage new believers. And and one church in particular that Paul was having to deal with a myriad of issues with was the church at Corinth. I've brought this up before, but man, he had to deal with all kinds of stuff. Some of you think you've experienced some church drama in your life. Read through the letter that Paul wrote to church Corinth, not to minimize your drama, but man, they had issues on top of issues. And he dealt with this one and then took a, a turn and dealt with this and then dealt with that. And he shepherded lovingly. And yet when the Holy Spirit had him come up for air after writing about uh, selfish, sinful behavior and immorality in the leadership of the church and doctrinal confusion and theological error and abuse of gifts, all of that, he came to chapter 15 in uh, 1 Corinthians. I know I told you to turn to John 11. That's fine. Hold your place there if you want to turn with me. But in chapter 15, Paul would write these words. He says, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, Evangelion. that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul writes, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. 
For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. It was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was for them, I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul, in his characteristic, wordy way of conveying it, says here's the main thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is everything. Yeah, we've got to deal with church issues, but and this is the main thing. It's everything. Everything before the cross in Scripture points to the necessity of the cross. Everything after the cross in Scripture looks back to the cross. Next time we're in John's Gospel, we're going to see in John 12 a celebration of the fact that, G- that Lazarus had been raised by Jesus. Last week we walked through that very saga with the death and resurrection of Lazarus. But we did it with our eyes fixed on Jesus. John's Gospel is noticeably quiet on putting the spotlight on Lazarus. Wouldn't you love for somebody to have flipped their phone out and at least captured Lazarus and said, so what was that like? Right? What did death sound like? What did it look like? If you get a kid in Sunday school, I'm sure the question is, what did it smell like? I mean, they're going to ask everything. We get nothing from Lazarus. A lot of texts dedicated to Lazarus, we don't have any words from Lazarus, actually, at any point. Chapter's not about Lazarus, it's about Jesus, demonstrating that he had power over death before we even get the events of the cross set in motion. Nobody had a more dramatic conversion than Saul to Paul. We just read him dealing with that with the Corinthian church. But when Saul talks about the fact that he's got all these credentials and he was well-trained and equipped, he still comes back to the centrality of the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hear me, church family. You may have a favorite preacher or teacher, but you better be following Jesus. He's the ruler of the church. We're transitioning now in John's Gospel as we come to the end of chapter 11. We're transitioning toward the cross. And if we really think about the cross, if we were to meditate this morning on the cross, we would see it as an incredibly awesome, history-altering, divine intervention into the course of humanity. But it's not a pleasant thought. It's such a grotesque form of torture that the Romans would not even allow Roman citizens to be executed in that manner. It's a violent, bloody, cruel instrument of slowly killing someone publicly. 
And our King of glory endured this because of your sin and mine. As Christians, we're not consumed with an unhealthy fascination about violence, but we don't ignore what God's Word says. From this point forward, John begins to shift toward the cross as his focus. Lazarus demonstrated the power of God to resurrect, the power that he had over death before the condemners sentenced him to die. You need to know that the death of Jesus Christ cannot be denied historically. We have more than the Bible to go on as it relates to that. The Bible's enough. For, for those of you that say, well, that's really myth, that's history, that's not really history. Wrong. It is historically proven to have happened. This is not fan fiction here. The issue is not did Jesus die, but why did he die? And our text brings us the answer from an unsuspecting pawn in God's plan. Caiaphas, one of the masterminds that would put Jesus on the cross. You're taking notes this morning. I've got a few little headers for you to kind of capture some of the action of the text. The first is almost a no-brainer, so forgive me if it seems that way, but it's important for you to remember this. People respond to Jesus. Everybody that's confronted with the claims of Christ and the person of Jesus responds to Jesus. You here today will respond to Jesus. It doesn't mean that all of you will believe. It doesn't mean that all of you will trust. It doesn't mean that all of you will reject. But you will always respond to Jesus. It's very encouraging that the text starts out with reminding us that many believed. Can you look at that with me at verse 45? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. What an encouraging text. It's almost throwaway when you see all the actions kind of get put into play. But can I just encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ in here to remind us just how important it is for us to be on mission? Let's look at the conditions here for these many to believe. Now, God the Holy Spirit, the Lord the Father is drawing them to Jesus. But look at the, look at the details here. Uh, many believe they were with other believers. Remember it said they came with Mary. So they came with believers. They saw the power of God and they believed. By the way, this is the way that most people still come to Jesus today. It's the way that most people are reached with the gospel. Most people that come to faith in Jesus Christ today that pass from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, most people come because somebody they know and love or like or tolerate <laughs> a little bit uh, invites them into their lives and they see the power of God and how it's changed this person. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 3.15 that we're ready to give an answer to those that ask for the reason, that, for the hope that we have. And we do it with gentleness and respect. And God uses the fragmented and broken pieces of our lives and our story to draw people to Jesus Christ. We confess that Christ is Lord and people believe. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's the way it happens. Most people don't come to faith uh, listening to a program on the radio or a podcast or responding to a mailer 
or even by door-to-door evangelism. Most people don't come to faith that way. Very few, statistically speaking, come on their own without a relationship. When humble Christians boldly live out their faith and pray for opportunities to fulfill the Great Commission, watch this, God brings a harvest and He gets all the glory. You talk to somebody that regularly shares the gospel with friends and family and they'll tell you, like, it just blows my mind that people say, yes, it's so simple. I'm not any good at this. I just try to live out the gospel and open my mouth when there's an open door. It's incredible what happens. Some people believed in him here, but in verse 46, let's see what the text says. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So many believed, but here's the second group of people. Many rejected him, and then they wanted to make it hard for others. They they didn't want anybody else to believe him. They not only rejected Jesus, look at what it says. They wanted to make trouble for Jesus. They stirred up The haters, you've got people in your life that can't stand that you're a Christian. You think that's about you. It's about Jesus. Now, if you're irritating, it might be about you. But I'm just saying, for most of us, it's probably about Jesus, not so much about you. They refuse to submit to God's authority. And when they find out you're a Christian, and this happens increasingly in the marketplace today, it wasn't 40 plus years ago When you would move into a town, you'd want to establish, if you were in business, you'd want to establish at a local prominent church, and that would help you in society. It was good for people to know that, well, he goes to such and such church, or she attends such and such church. And now if you attend a church that professes that Jesus Christ is Lord and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to Him, and this Bible is without error, without any mixture of error, and it's the Word of Almighty God, it will cost you in business oftentimes. And people won't just reject you. They'll make life hard if they can. That's what they did here. It set a course and a tone in motion that we don't get away from from the rest of John's Gospel because now the plot begins to thicken as a clear plot to kill Jesus. People respond to Jesus. Some believed Him, some rejected Him and made it hard, and then others, uh, you've got to kind of laugh at this, many try to stop Jesus. Look at verses 47 and 48 with me quickly. The chief priests and Pharisees and the council get together and said, what are we to do? What are we going to do? It's a question that still plagues us today, isn't it? And all of humanity has to answer that question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. (laughs) So they know he's got power. And the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. He's messing things up politically. We've got all this stuff figured out. Jesus is wrecking our plans. And we're the religious leaders. Jesus had already called them out as the false and bad shepherds before in chapter 10. And now we see it on full display. They're more concerned about their position and their plans staying intact than they are about Christ, the Messiah, being exalted and worshipped. They knew what would happen. If He keeps doing this, all will believe. You'd think they'd go... We've been praying for the Messiah for years, but they reject Him. And they want to shut it down. And they play right into God's plan and hands. 
By the way, they answer the question, what are we to do with Jesus? The right answer for them is the right answer for us. You ready? Repent and believe. That's what you do with Jesus. You repent and believe. They acknowledged His power. They saw the signs, but they missed what they were pointing to. You get GPS instructions on your phone or your GPS um, device driving down the road. Turn in half a mile. Turn in 500 feet. Left turn coming ahead. Turn now. Recalculating. And then you go off the cliff and you go like, I don't know what happened. It's one thing to see the signs, to hear the signs. It's another thing to go to what they're pointing you to. All the signs were pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They saw it, but they missed it. He was the anointed one from heaven. Let me tell you something, whether or not they received Him as God's only Son, whether or not they accepted Him as Messiah, didn't change the fact that that's exactly who He was. The same goes for every man, woman, and child alive today. What you think about God, A.W. Tozer writes, is the most important thought you will have in your mind. What comes to your mind when you think about God is one of the most, it's more important than you thinking about your career or your um, next step, or who you're in relationship with. What you think about God says a lot about where you are with God. But let me just tell you something. What you think about God has no bearing on who He actually is. Jesus Christ is hell's terror. Jesus Christ is heaven's delight. Jesus Christ is earth's only hope and he's not polling to see where he stands in the race for your attention or affection this crowd thinks they can thwart the work of god by turning jesus in the chief priests are going to put a plan together and a plot together to put out a hit on jesus more than just the stones but they are pawns in god's grand story of redemption Let me just tell you, as the heat gets turned up on you, maybe in the marketplace, some of you I know, I know a couple of you, we've talked about this, we've prayed about this together, the heat is turning up, and you're still standing boldly for Christ and refusing to bow to Baal. I'm encouraged, you're you're some of my heroes. I pray for you regularly. I pray also that when you get fired, you'll be able to eat bread. I know somebody that makes some. No. On Stone Street says, we need to have a theology of getting fired. We, we need to be prepared for our theology to cost us something. But I'm praying for you. When you stand firm, when you stand tall, when, when you stand tall, these people that think they can thwart the Word of God or the work of God and shut you up by doing this, that, or the other, they're going to be sadly mistaken. God's kingdom will prevail. The final pages of history have already been written and we win. Because our victor has the crown of the King of Kings and the Lord of Glory. Caiaphas has a plan. He tells everybody, you all don't know anything. You don't know what's up. And then he proceeds to utter something beyond himself. In verse 50, it probably sunk in when he said it. He said, you don't understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Don't you wish you would have been there to go like, say that again. Let him say it again. And him just say it. Say what? And you go, say it one more time and just listen to what you're saying. 
But they, they can't see. They don't know. We have the benefit of knowing how this thing plays out. John then gives commentary, which he doesn't do often in the Gospel of the Holy Spirit, authoring the text here. But John says right after this verse, look at what he says in verse 51. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Well, that's huge, but every one of us in here ought to be thankful for this next verse. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas, the chief priest, is confessing God's plan of redemption, and he would never admit to that. <laughs> He's concerned primarily with the Romans getting in their business if it looks like there's factionalism growing on. He wants to protect what he thinks he has a hold on. Can I tell you something? When you work against God and you think you're protecting what you think you have a hold on, you're in for a rude awakening. Caiaphas is about to discover that. He's concerned primarily with the Romans getting in their business, but that's not all that's at stake. Second major header this morning as we come to the final verses here. The plot thickens, and it thickens real fast. Caiaphas begins to self-justify his actions. The religious leaders have wanted to silence Jesus. We've seen that all throughout John, but they've been unsuccessful. They can't get him to stop doing what he's doing. They've wanted to humiliate Jesus. They've tried to banter with him, tried to trip him up in public. That's never ended well for them. Ever ended well for them. I watched a quick video clip just uh, last night. Ashley and I were watching it. William Lane Craig, when he was young, I'd never seen clips of him when he was young. He was on um, this talk show panel, and um, there's a scientist in the, in the middle, rather academic-looking scientist, like had the glasses that you would twirl with your pinky exposed, right? This kind of thing. And he said to William Lane Craig, who's a great apologist, by the way, Christian apologist, he said, um, are you telling me that there, uh, you actually believe there are areas of life that science can't prove? And William Lane Craig said, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. He said, let me give you five. And then the guy just slowly died on camera. Like, you watch this man all the life. In fact, somebody commented underneath. He said, this is like when windows crashes. Like, you're just watching it right in front of you. The guy just kind of sat there and was blinking his eyes, and it cut to one audience shot, and the audience is going like this. Remarkable. Remarkable. They tried to trip Jesus up, and he was way better than William Lane Craig, I'll tell you that. They never could. He would turn the tables on him. They, they've tried, uh, instead of learning their lesson, what they're going to do now is they're going to escalate it. So, so they've not learned their lesson. They're going to escalate it. They want to kill him. They want to put him to death. It is premeditated, but they have no idea just how premeditated it is. It's moving beyond picking up some stones impulsively in the temple, which has happened twice already. Now we're moving into conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree. But even as we begin this march toward the death of Jesus, I want to remind you something. Oswald Chambers said it great when he said, we're not witnessing the death of a martyr. We're seeing the revelation of the eternal love of God. Caiaphas wants a quick solution to a political problem but the death of Jesus Christ would reach far beyond this small-minded religious bureaucrat who was trying to fix something because he was threatened. God had ordained the death of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells me in Acts 
chapter number 2 and verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We see the intersection of God's divine sovereign will and the actions of humanity. God used the actions of men unwittingly to accomplish His will. God decided for Jesus to die. Why? For God so loved the world, you and me, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Wait, Caiaphas was using some of that language. Perish, but have everlasting life. The death of Jesus Christ would result, uh, was the result of a natural, tragic murder in the first degree. Yes, and kind of, it was more than that, much more than that. The death of Jesus Christ fulfilled God's eternal plan. Make no mistake, Caiaphas was not an unwitting robot in this. He was not a spiritual dummy uh, with God's hand moving up his back and animating his mouth. No, it's a great interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. John MacArthur writes, God sovereignly turned his wicked, blasphemous words into truth. Only God can do that. There are things in your life that looks like the deck is stacked against you. God can sovereignly turn that for good because that's how He works. And He knew it. It's not caught Him off guard. The death of Jesus Christ may have been politically expedient for the leadership of Israel, but it accomplishes far more important purposes for all of humanity. Caiaphas said it's for the whole nation. John chimes in and says it's not just for the whole nation, it's for everybody. Jesus' death would satisfy the righteous, hot wrath of God, the only true God who is holy, 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 that had to be poured out on sin. Caiaphas said Jesus was going to die for the people. You better believe it. And you better believe it. <laughs> when Caiaphas said he had to die for the people, I don't want to get in the weeds too much here, but the language that Caiaphas used, our English gives us accurate words, but it doesn't convey the weight of it. He used the same language that he used when they were talking about temple sacrifices for the covering of sin. Come on. The Gospel of John constantly points us to these Passover festivals. In fact, the rest of John plays out essentially in a Passover week. Remember in chapter 1, what did John the Baptist say twice when he saw Jesus and he identified Jesus? He said, Behold the Lamb. Twice he refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. In chapter 12, the rest of John's Gospel takes place focused on the Lamb for Passover. Caiaphas actually reminds us today that there has to be a payment for the debt of sin, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. You see, the Bible tells us that all have sinned. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, how have we sinned? What have we done that's so bad? We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator, or the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. The Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And there's nothing that we can do about it. There has to be something in our stead. And not just any lamb, not just a spotless lamb, but a perfect, 
spotless lamb to satisfy the debt of sin. Only a perfect lamb could shed his blood for the sins of all humanity. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We didn't do anything to earn this or to cause this. We were still weak, but at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Caiaphas said a mouthful and prophesied for the whole world, it is better for one to die than the whole nation. In the remaining verses, we see the stage being set for the greatest act of love the world will ever know. Jesus, after this, doesn't walk openly and alone anymore. Look at verse 54. He, he then went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now I want you to notice in the next couple of verses the contrast between how Jesus and the disciples and the worshipers move and how sinisterly those who are plotting destruction move. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Verse 57, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so they might arrest Him. The stage is being set for the Jews and Gentiles alike to see it's not only better for one to die, but absolutely necessary. And only Christ could be the one. Jesus' death did not just create the possibility of salvation. Jesus' death is salvation because of who He is. We don't just get something from God because Jesus died on the cross. We get Jesus. the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of you and me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The question falls to us, that the chief priests and the Pharisees asked themselves, what are we to do? What are we going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus this September morning of 2023? What about your family? What will they do with Jesus? What about your friends and your co-workers, your enemies? What will they do with Jesus? Here it is. You ready? Jesus gave us the formula. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does that mean, Pastor? It means you ask God to forgive you. You turn from your sin and trust only in Jesus. That's what it means to repent and believe. Newsflash, you won't actually have the power to do that on your own. The Bible says, By grace, 
We're saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. But if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. When Jesus radically saves us, when Jesus changes our lives, He puts us on the pathway to pursue Him and His design like we were created to do in all areas of our lives. It'll be God who works in and through us, Philippians 2 says, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Ephesians 2 says we're His workmanship. We're His masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's better for one to die. Many of us, know this. Many of us believe this. Many of us are experiencing this today as the family of God. So what do we do as believers with a message like this? We go back to verse 45 as Julia comes to the piano this morning. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Do you have friends? Family, co-workers, enemies that need Jesus. Jesus said, when you receive the Holy Spirit and He comes upon you, you will be His witnesses. Inviting people into our lives that they might see the power of a resurrected Savior who's made us new so that they might believe God. This is the only mission that advances the kingdom of God in this day and age. Let's pray that God would use us and show everyone we come into contact with the better one, the only one worthy to die in our place. Let's pray. will you do with Jesus today? Will you trust Him? Will you believe Him? Brother or sister in Christ, what will you do with Jesus today? Will you believe Him enough to invite others into your lives, to disrupt your routine so that others might see the power of God and be drawn to Him? God, 
We are praying for a gospel revival for our lives, for our church, and throughout the whole world. We pray that Jesus would be lifted up by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through us, and that many would believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen.